This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to the CMO Spotlight on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again are Catherine Hayes and Jenny Rooney. And welcome back. Thanks for that great warm-up music. Um, We are really thrilled today to be talking uh, with the next CMO list, sort of an A-list that Jenny has uh, found. I'm Catherine Hayes, the co-author of Beyond Advertising, Creating Value Through All Customer Touchpoints with my co-host, Jenny Rooney, who's the Forbes CMO Network Editor. Hi, Jenny. Hi, how are you? Good, good, good. good. So welcome back. Um, We just spoke with Marissa Tarleton. She was the chief, she is the chief marketing officer at Retail Me Not. And now we are very thrilled to be talking with another one of these uh, A-listers. CMO Nexters. CMO Nexters, right. That's our term for it. Jackson J. Nyagum. And uh, he's the chief marketing officer at Boxed.com. Welcome to the show, Jackson. Thank you for having me. How are you guys doing? Hey, good. How are you, Jackson? I'm good. I'm a little nasally, so forgive me. Uh, as am I. It's okay. the season. Uh, okay, you stay <laughs> way over there, Jenny, and I'm glad that you're on the phone, Jackson, so thanks both. But um, but seriously, welcome to the show, and congratulations for being uh, named to this uh, really exciting list. Thank you. It's, it's quite an honor. So you, let's go ahead and just start with, a, again, a little bit of context. Tell us about Boxed and what that is. We really want to find out about you and what you're up to, but let's start with the context and where you're working. Yeah, so so box is um, you know essentially club um, wholesale CPG goods delivered to your door within two days. Uh, I always like to make a, a funny analogy. If, if Amazon and Costco were to hook up in Jersey and have a kid, and the kid moved to Soho, uh, we're that kid. <laughs> so you know, think of all the best things of both those companies without all the hassles or um, too many options or maybe price discrepancy. We try to give the best value, best price, uh, curated selection of you know 2,500 items of shelf-stable CPG essential Consumer packaged uh, goods. Door. Yep. In two days, exactly, consumer packaged goods. Um, and we, we've evolved into other things too, like wine and spirits and, and fresh in some cities. So that'll continue to uh, kind of be our next evolution. But uh, yeah, that's it. No membership fees and a pretty simple concept. Wow. How long have you been around? Remind me. Uh, Box has been around for exactly five years and uh, like a month, I think. Uh, uh, 2013 was when the company was founded. Wow. Um, and talk about its um, origin story, you know, the founders and sort of what was the uh, impetus for it? <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of amazing. These four guys got together. They uh, started a mobile gaming company a few years before, and they're like 30. 30- Five thirty-six now, so yeah. you know, in their late twenties, I believe they started a, a mobile gaming company. Had some moderate success, sold it pretty quickly to Zenga. You know, had a little bit of money oh. to kind of figure out what their next thing was. Yeah, it was, it was, I think, a kind of the first foray into yeah. entrepreneurship. And and they decided one of them came from Goldman Sachs, another one, two of them were were financial lawyers, and they're like, I'm not going back to that world. Um, and and they had enough money not to go buy an island and, and live by themselves somewhere, but enough to make their own decisions for you know what they really yeah. cared about. And, they saw this opportunity in 2013 uh, where they're like, listen, Amazon's here. People are buying things like, you know, homes and cars, and diamond <laughs> rings online, but yeah. no one's buying paper towel and toilet paper. It's like, <laughs> that's got to be the next thing to fall. Um, and so they, they grew up going to Costco like many of us and said, mm. you know, Costco's amazing, great experience, but 
maybe not for everyone, especially the newer shoppers, the people who have grown up online, who have grown up on Amazon. So they started out of Che, the, the CEO's uh, and my boss's garage in Jersey. Beautiful. And had a few friends and family. Yeah, classic story, right? Yeah. Uh, and you, and pa- um, you pass the facility, right, when you're going to uh, Newark Airport in, oh, in Jersey. You'll see it. it there on the right. Okay. In the, the, yeah. the aqua letters that, that pop out. Yep. Yeah, that then that's not his garage. They were graduated uh, <laughs> <laughs> to that <laughs> about a year later. But yeah, no, he's not far from that though. <laughs> that's so cool. So tell us about you. You know, tell us about your your background as well, because uh, you have an interesting story to tell as well. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I started um, graduated University of Oregon in two thousand um, around the dot com bus, the first one, and then went into tech PR. Kind of fell fell into that a little bit on the hmm. agency side and spent my first, I guess, nine years at the same firm between Portland, Seattle, and New York, mainly working on T-Mobile and Microsoft. So I launched, uh, if you remember all the Sidekick products, you know, Paris Hilton mm-hmm. and T-Mobile Sidekick. Yeah. Um, so that was my baby. It was the, My job was essentially to make that thing as hot and popular as we could with the younger audience. And, mm-hmm. you know, we used celebrities to do a lot of that. And social media became pretty relevant around that time. And then uh, went to an influencer marketing firm in New York where I got a chance to work on uh, uh, a P&G, which was, that was the brand, right? Especially in mid right. late 2000s. You know, you get that on your resume, you're a set, right? Yeah. Um, and lucky enough to work on Old Spice before the Old Spice campaign and then widened about, you know, six months into my tenure there, launched the campaign and we were supporting the social media side. Of, uh, if you remember the guy on the horse of doing Twitter videos. Who could forget? Yeah, Isaiah Mustafa. So that's kind of when I fell in love with digital. I'm like, wow, this whole digital thing is clearly here to stay and it's, you know, you can actually drive sales results with it. And then uh, I went to another agency for five years to build a digital marketing practice, working with Diageo and Nike and Taco Bell. And then um, that was an amazing experience, built a P&L and kind of got experience team building versus just running campaigns and accounts. Right. And then went to uh, Chipotle uh, and I ran digital marketing there. Uh, unfortunately, I got there about three months before the food crisis. So uh, <laughs> it was a little bit different of experience than I thought. Oops. But uh, yeah, but got great crisis experience. I was just about to say that's that. probably, you've probably got some toughening up to, to say the least in all of that. Actually, we should probably ask a little bit about it. What what were the main, I should let you finish, but what were the main lessons, uh, takeaways from a crisis management perspective? Yeah, I mean, so that was it. After that, I went to Box Die in November of 2016. So, yeah, the, I, I, there were so many, right? Yeah. I would say the first thing was uh, hindsight's 2020. I look at, you know, the United Airlines incident a couple of years ago, and I look at all these other incidents. And, and in most cases, it's not as simple as just looking at it and saying what they could have done better because there's just a chain of events, mm. especially when you're a corporate and you have a storefront or you have drivers or you have a retail uh, customer experience or you have um, flight attendants. Like, there's sometimes a disconnect, and, you know, they have certain KPIs. They have certain results they have to the flight has to leave on time. Chipotle, you have to service X amount of customers and get them through the line in 12 minutes mm. and you know hit revenue goals. So decisions get made as a result of that myopic view, which is unfortunate. And Chipotle was no different. You know, mm. uh, the food crisis was two pieces. It was the E. coli outbreak, but then a norovirus outbreak because the manager didn't send a sick employee home. And then you know you have what ended up being one of the most famous crises ever. So I think. You know, that's one thing. The second piece I'd say is, you know, we thought we were being transparent, but we weren't transparent enough. And, and all of wow. us made the decision um, to, to, you know, do what we did in terms of how we communicated. But what we should have been doing is communicating every day, even if we didn't know anything. And yeah. we thought at the time that would have mm-hmm. been bad, not only for customers, but for investors. And, and, you know, from a market standpoint, that seemed like, oh, well, they don't know what they're doing. But in reality, in retrospect, people just want to hear you're still trying you're still working through the mm-hmm. challenges. Here's what you know. Here's what you don't know, even if it's no more information than yesterday. Right. right. I think that was one of the biggest learnings. And thirdly, I think, you know, we just didn't do a great job of managing 
the leadership and when we put them out there and who we put out there and, and who they talk to and engaging wow. the media, yeah. I would say was a big mistake. We kind of avoided it. And I think uh, the day and age crisis, the best crisis comes plan is to go ahead head first into it and talk to the media and be open and transparent as much as you can, of course. Um, so I would say those are some of the learnings that I took away at least. Very helpful, especially um, with some of the many situations that are going on where um, the chief executives are not necessarily coming to the fore and um, and having a lot of conversation around what they're doing and not doing so. I would argue, though, that so much has changed even since that. I mean, that was, what, two years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, and that's a lifetime when you talk about <laughs> transparency and oversharing yeah. and you know what I mean? We've come so far and you say it, hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, sure, but I think at the time you were only doing what, frankly, any... Brian in the same true. situation would have tried would have done to try to figure out like how do you I mean because you had very good reasons for not oversharing you know so yeah um, yep. but, but we're you don't so, want to cause a panic right totally it's not there yet it's, I mean everything's yeah. a learning experience so um, yeah. but I do you, think I yeah. do think for 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 our listeners that it's it's a really important point to drive home in terms of every next CMO who's really thinking about how to manage in this um, day and age with the speed uh, and the need for transparency, which is, you know, and I've heard in some conversations with some folks at Edelman, a public relations firm plus, um, how they're having a lot more conversations and doing basically dry runs. So they're saying, and mm-hmm. as you said at, at the beginning, Jackson, that stuff can go wrong everywhere. If you <laughs> if you have employees, if you treat the there's going to be interactions and, and things will happen. So to think in ahead of time, what are some of the worst things that could happen and go run the whole executive team through, if not the whole organization, here's how we're going to handle these things and be, you can never be ready for everything, but you can at least try mm-hmm. to be ready for the things that you can think of in advance. Yeah, I think that's just smart. And I would say to add to that, also not get paralyzed by the data yep. or, or the moment. Mm. I think that can happen often too, where you have so much data flying at you. You have so much because of this day and age of social media and, and, and you know analytics. You can have a lot coming at you. And at the end of the day, it comes down to the CEO being able to make a decision and trusting their gut, You know, balancing that data and the gut is still critical. And I think as much as the, that, the routine is important, I think that's a great idea. Even on top of that, I think that CEO still at the end of the day, he or she needs to be able to say, okay, yeah. I understand this is what's happening. I see the data. I see the historical trends. But I'm running this company based on the vision that we've outlined, and this is kind of how um, I would like to respond to situations. So I think there's that balance there, too, because you also don't want to sell out your employees because oftentimes it's probably whatever has happened is a direct result of a partner or an employee, most likely, right? Right. Um, so how do you manage that? But, yeah, I think at least You're doing those dry together. runs and that yeah. practice does help. Yeah. So let's talk about that then. You know, so obviously what – is the role of CMO, you know, and you have some strong views on what you think, you know, where CMOs need to sit within organizations, how they need to be driving growth, you know, um, and certainly how are you doing that in your role there? Yeah, yeah. So, you you know, you said, you know, I, I believe strongly in this. I think the new CMO, I think there's a lot of different things that are coming to play about say There's two or three pretty large trends. I think definitely the revenue, right? So historically, in my opinion, and come from the agency side, interacting with some CMOs, um, lucky enough to, across different verticals, it was much more of an advertising madman-led CMO function, right? For the most part, right? So it was very much creative-led. You know, I, I have a relationship with my creative director of the agency side. I have a $100 million retainer, and I'm spending a lot of money from Super Bowl ads to, to ongoing TV and out of home, and, and that's how the brand is kind of, the story is told. But I think now, especially with digital and, and e-commerce becoming such a bigger part uh, of the story, whether you're a retailer or, you know, a CPG or, or non-endemic uh, partner there, you need to understand 
how does marketing actually drive sales versus, oh, I'm going to take 5% of my sales and put it towards marketing or, you know, marketing <laughs> right. is a function of sales. Right. Now it's, oh, is sales a function of my marketing? Am I actually driving sales? And I think that's a combination of hmm. not only the channels you use, right, from above the line to below the line, but it's also how you think about integrating across your peer set, yeah. so whether it's supply chain and operations, customer service, hmm. sales, um, um, you know, merchandising, if that's a function within your team, retail, uh, omni-channel, all of that. The marketing lead doesn't have to necessarily oversee, but they have to have an understanding of it, almost playing a GM role yeah. where they really understand each input and how that then produces an output that marketing plays a large role into. So I think that's one piece. The second piece I would say is maybe on the software side, the qualitative side, it's, you know, I think that the chief marketing officer is a chief culture officer, is a, is a, is a chief people officer in some way, working with the head of HR to really help motivate and engage the employee base who, who oftentimes are customer facing, not all the time. Um, and helping them understand the vision, who the customer is, and keeping them excited about what they're, the company's trying to build without drinking the Kool-Aid and being very honest about where the challenges are and where the opportunities are. So I think there's an interesting role that the CMO is positioned uh, to be that a CFO or a COO or a CSO, you know, an insert in our C tile, maybe not have the same uh, perspective. So I, I think there's those two pieces that I think is at a high level the largest shift I've seen, at least in my, you know, 20 years now working across different verticals. Yeah. Wow, a lot to unpack there. I, I think in particular, I would love to hear your relationship with the chief customer officer. It, it's interesting that it it falls on our conversation a little while ago that, you know, things are, when you've got a, a workforce and especially customer facing, things are going to, may happen. So really yeah. incorporating that and understanding, it's certainly what, what we talk about in terms of this notion of all touch point orchestration. It's, we as consumers or uh, the audience of brands we don't just think about what the ad says and think, oh, that's what the brand is. It's our experience. Mm -hmm. It's our interaction. Every single interaction is what builds up that um, that impression, that relationship, uh, and that affinity. Mm -hmm. So thinking about your employees as as partners, as you know, those who are maybe the most critical um, mm -hmm. part of your marketing plan is really, really interesting. Was that radical? Did you bring that to it? Is that something that you helped to transform? Yeah, I mean, I wish I agree with you completely, and I wish I could take all the credit. I think you know, um, the founders. I think maybe it's a generational thing. I hate mm. to say it's a millennial thing, because I think that gets tossed around a lot. But you know, I do think you know the younger generations, like any history has already shown this, they they grow up differently. They think about things differently, mm -hmm. especially in the last twenty years with digital and technology um, just being so perverse. I think that's where like they really thought about what kind of company do they want to build, what kind of uh, company do they want to stand for, what do people mean in their company, meaning they're not just employees that they hire. So mm -hmm. for them, it was really important that they built a culture with employees in mind first. So they kind of already had that groundwork laid down. Then when they hired me, they said, well, how do we build upon this? Like, what's that next step? We've done some cool benefits, the wedding benefit, the college benefit, we're taking care of our employees, we think. But what's that next thing? How do we translate that to productivity, to sales, but mm -hmm. without it seeming opportunistic because that's a very right. thin line right like yeah. you can very quickly see like oh you're just doing that because you want some good press or you want to drive more sales yep, which right. you can't lie that's part of it but it's not at the core of it right that's not why you do it it just ends up being a byproduct of it so that wasn't me but i did help them kind of lay the groundwork for kind of what that vision is what role different people in the organization play how we should be thinking about structuring the next iteration of whatever those benefits are, how do we communicate it. So it's honestly still a work in progress. We haven't nailed it because mm. you know, times are changing and play based right. change and going fast. But um, it is an ongoing conversation. That was something that was really near and dear to me because I'd come from all, all types of organizations, some that did nothing for their employees, some that did a lot. Um, like Starbucks is one of my clients and they're, you know, Howard Schultz 
created a DNA that was all about their employees and their partners, mm-hmm. right? The, the partners at the retail store. And I right. think companies like that, I saw and I was like, wow, that's that's amazing. You know, they've been around for, what, 30 plus years? And, and they, if they can do it, we surely can too. So yeah. uh, it's still a work in progress, but it came from the founders. And it has to come come from leadership, I think. We're speaking with Jackson J. Nyagum, uh, who's the chief marketing officer at Box.com. And I'm Catherine Hayes, and I'm here with uh, Jenny Rooney. I have to ask the question, Jackson, too, around resources, you know, and like how much you you do in-house, how much do you want to own, you know, in-house versus what do you want to do with agencies or external partners? I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's going to be weird coming from me, a guy who's 15 years in agency life, but I actually think... And I'll say uh, about 20% of the people on the list uh, had previous agency experience. Mm-hmm. Just 20%? Just 20%, mm-hmm. yeah. Interesting. I'll confirm that, that nice by the end of the... Too, I, yeah, go ahead. nice to see that. Um, you have that. That's so many people come from agencies. I think agency provides great perspective. Yeah. But I, should, I think the new model is bringing a lot of that great talent and those resources in-house. Now, I don't know if I'd call it an internal agency. I, I think that also is another term that gets tossed around when no mm, one really knows what that means. Right. Um, and I'm not saying agencies don't serve as a role. Like By no means am I saying that. Agencies are still very critical. I think it's changing, though. I think, And this could be a pendulum that shifts back in mm-hmm. 30 years. But what I'm seeing from a talent perspective, what I'm seeing from a productivity standpoint, what I'm seeing from just like a, the teams that have figured it out, they seem to be hiring in-house media leads, in-house creative directors. Um, I don't know if account people will necessarily have a role. I think account people are essentially PMs, and I was an account person for a few years, so you know I can speak to that. But I think what you'll see is the key functions like analytics, media, creative, um, you know, I say those are the big three brought in-house, led from internal, instead of the strategy. Oftentimes, you know, agencies, mm-hmm. I was on this other side, we get briefed, and they're the ones coming with a full creative strategy around a business or a launch, and then, of course, executing it with approval of the brand, right? Yep. They're just getting dictated to the core audiences, the timelines, the budget, <laughs> high-level objectives, but they're the ones developing the strategy, and I'd argue that should be the role of the in-house marketing team led by the CMO, but with the creative director kind of taking that lead there, mm-hmm. or head of brand, head of integrated marketing, um, and then giving it back to the agency and saying, here's where the strategy, here's where we're driving towards, now you help us activate. Um, so they help come in and actually execute, and, and I think that will look like, instead of a 20, 30-person team that's spending 25% of their time on the business, you might get a four or five-person team, and yes, that could be a Colgate coyote in business that is still 10, 15, 20, $100 million a year, but it's four or five, 10 people um, ongoing, 100%, mm. sitting at the office two to three days a week, like embedded with that team, and then overflow depending on the activation, right? You might need a street team to do something. You still might need extra copywriters and designers for a major out-of-home initiative, but the ongoing team is really a core team that is an extension of the marketing team that's executing day in and day out, sitting next to that team, and then they're bringing additional resources as needed based on the spikes. Um, and then, of course, when you have, you know, big major, you know, overflow issues or, you know, you're, you're stuck right. with staffing challenges, then you might bring an agency as well. But I think that relationship is going to change. I think you're already seeing it, right? The nature of retainers yep. has started to go away where brands have 10, 12 agencies on their yep. roster. I don't know if that's sustainable, but there's a reason all these small spinoffs, like 72 and Sunny was a spinoff, I think, of maybe White and, and perhaps Droger, one of the two big ones. And now they're seeing spinoffs from 72 and Sunny, and people are like, there's got to be a better way. So <laughs> Even as so we see can... consolidation, so well, on the flip right. side. <laughs> one of the yeah. With WPP's yeah. news, yeah. One of the interesting things um, that you mentioned, a concept that I think is really critical, is that you questioned the concept or the the name of calling it an in-house agency. And I really like that because, you know, there's just so much conversation around the agency model being broken mm. that yeah. why would you just take a 
broken model <laughs> right. and, and put it, it on the inside yeah. of the door instead of the outside of the door. Yeah. Like that, that's yep. just wrong. I mean, that's ridiculous if you have the opportunity. And yep. But what you refer to it as um, bringing the critical talent areas in-house, um, um, creative it's analytics. Just and creating bespoke yeah. resources per right. objective. Yeah. Embedded right. and part of it and, and having it sort of live and breathe and then use the expertise as needed. So I think rethinking the whole model as, as the whole uh, environment is changing is is really bright. So I love that. Well, and what happens is by, by definition, agency is a consultation, right? They're consulting with you as almost an external resource. Sure. When you bring an agency model in-house, I've seen it happen. I think fashion did this first, and they were one of the first ones because they were doing so many shoots, and they had their studio in-house, and you'd see a lot of creative directors at the mm. big fashion houses come and start these agencies now. So I feel like they're one of the earliest ones to adopt this. And, and I know many people worked over there and they've said the same story. There's an isolation. The agency yeah. team was staff from old agency people. So they're automatically <laughs> just, they've created this separation. They even have their own email addresses. So it's, it's kind of like, well, what was the point of that? You yeah. might as well <laughs> just, just like you kept for your old agency. So I agree with you. I think they have to be integrated into marketing. This happens actually with comms too. PR is sometimes gets siloed out of marketing, which I think is insane. It's madness. Insane. Like, it's all marketing. Right. Yeah. Customer service should fall under there, right. sales should fall under there, but that's a different discussion. But if you treat that team as an agency within, like you just said, it's never going to get traction. It's never going to get integrated. But if they're just, it's just a creative director, it's just an analytics director, it's just a media lead, it's just a, you know, a copywriter alongside, it's a head of brand, it's a head of comms, it's a, you know, a head of CRM. Then they're an integrated team. It's one team, not there's the agency team. Let's go ask them for resources. Let's brief <laughs> them like we did our external agency. Right. The only difference is. You know, maybe they have the same email domain and they happen to sit next to you, and that does help, but that's not the same as a truly integrated team thinking with one purpose in mind, which is to help grow or evolve this brand or this organization. You know, that could be a whole show right mm -hmm. there. You oh, know, my God. For yeah. Sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, but it, it begs the question, you know, is it just semantics? And I, I would say that it's not. I mean, it's actual words do matter. And I think um, one of the things that came out of um, the Forbes CMO Summit that was just a couple of weeks ago, and Jackson was actually there. He was a panelist on the For CMO Next panel discussion. But Jackson, you, you, I'm sure you felt it and heard it, but, you know, and um, but people and I heard it at Cannes last summer, you know, people are companies are starting to talk about consumers as people, individual, human, you know, and there's sort of this 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 sort of awakening that while all this data and digital is fantastic, we're starting we were starting. I think there was a f sort of a feeling we were starting to lose you know that true emotional connection for lack of a better word i wish again we need to find better words <laughs> in marketing um <clears throat> empathy i think is yeah. the word that i've feel in many ways yeah. comes the closest to it and just tr really true authenticity and you know uh that has to start inside in-house with employees to your point right and just being as transparent as possible um any other thoughts or takeaways um on that particular um topic, Jackson, from your perspective? No, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm very passionate about this. I think future CMOs will come from fields like uh, like sociology and even psychology and even look more like an HR person that, than a marketer, right? And then, yes, you're mm -hmm. right, the data and analytics and the financial piece is important. I already said that. You know, I know I, I'm, I'm the biggest flag bearer of that. That said, I, I agree with you completely. I think they're going to have just a different mindset and that curiosity and empathy and the EQ, which mm -hmm. is a result, in my opinion, of curiosity and empathy. Um, has to evolve in that CMO and, and the marketing function across the organization. I mean, just uh, as a basic tactical nuance, think about, let's go for large organizations, small organizations. If I'm Googling a company I'm not sure about, um, and there's so many startups out there, right? It's oftentimes you're like, oh, what is that company? I saw an ad on, on the subway. I Google it. 
uh, the SEO impact of Glassdoor is pretty amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> usually the first thing I see after the company and maybe an ad um, is uh, even ahead of the Wikipedia page is Glassdoor. And I'll tell you what, I've talked to a lot of people. I do the same thing. I look at Ooh. it. I, I might not read all the reviews. And when I see two stars, Ooh. listen, I still might shop at them, but I definitely think about it. I'm like, well, yeah. it's them and someone else, and they have four or five stars. And listen, you could speak. You have another podcast on Glassdoor and the pros and cons of that. I get that. There's a lot of challenges with it. But the point is that kind of stuff is becoming more and more important. And as customers and as employees have more voices, it's not just Glassdoor. There's other ways where people tell their story. And when they start talking about maybe a company didn't take care of it, didn't treat us well, it gets out. And you're seeing media right. interest in that story. And you're seeing more and more of this happen. So I couldn't agree more. Even if it's just just be smart about how you think about your employees, that's like that's like table stakes. But the next step is really have an evolved, progressive uh, HR leadership, people leadership, working closely with the CEO, the CMO, and so forth to think about what does it mean to really be a people-first company, which ultimately will then you know, bleed out into how you deal with your guests, customers, consumers, whatever you, you might term them. Yeah, exactly. That's so fascinating. And it's sort of like you don't have to be transparent because Glassdoor exists. <laughs> and and <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah. it, you, you know, yeah, you, right. you already are transparent. Right. It's, you can either, uh, you know, get behind that or, or have it happen at you. Um, and Glassdoor yep. being the, the website where um, employees rate, uh, their, rate employers. their employers yeah. and bosses and on, on a bunch of different uh, rating scales. And so it's... It's, uh, well, it's interesting because, like, when I in everybody on the list, the CMO Next list, there were fifty people. They all had to answer the same five questions, mm -hmm. and that was part of the process. And um, you know, it, it was almost what came out. And I'm going to butcher how I'm trying to explain this, but it's like they they represented their companies as existing at the, um, you know, uh, because customers or people chose to have them exist for them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's not like yes. they're foisting. It, anyway, it was such a nuance, but it, it came through. Um, in, because customers, in we, we wouldn't exist as a company if we didn't have I mean, our customers. Just, and that's so always been the case, but, but I it's think different, now, yeah. especially with there's so many conduits for, for customer engagement, as you've obviously so well outlined in your book, I mean, um, the touch points have only are only expanding further. So as that happens... How do you make sure that everybody is sort of on board and 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 part of the ethos and, and engagement with the with the brand as they should be? So, anyway, Catherine. Back no, to you. just we we have just a, a literally two minutes left. Um, so, just any sort of final thoughts that you have, or Jackson, advice for other people? Yeah, our, for our listeners, aspiring CMOs. Since uh, you're uh, right uh, for, with your next <clears throat> CMO title. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get this question a lot. I love talking to college students because they're just so genuinely eager and interested. They're not jaded yet like the rest of us. So, like, <laughs> I, love, I love having this conversation. And they often ask me, like, what field should I study in and what right. should I major in? What internship should I take? And, you know, on, on one hand, you could argue, like, maybe the major doesn't matter as much as about the internships and the experience. But what I say in general is just make yourself as diverse as you can as as an employee but also uh, as a potential coworker, right like think about ways to re-engage mm. or, or engage with people you're going to work with like let them see your human size we talk about like who are the people you want to sit with 50 60 80 100 hours a week so showing that side as well as the hard skills right so getting some coding um, uh, experience might be good like knowing python or sql might be a helpful thing maybe knowing some indesign and photoshop is good having some curiosity about learning about different kinds of industries so you're not just a one person does one thing you're like oh well i also collect sneakers and i yeah. you know I, I donate my time at a shelter here and i also adopt puppies like whatever whatever those things are that that drive you and showing that 
I think it's just giving someone a well-rounded picture of who you are. Like, this is a person like, hey, our company might change, the industry might change, their role might change 10 times in 10 years. I want that, right? I don't necessarily need right. an SME for someone coming out of college. Now, if you're 10, 15 years in, I'd give different advice. But if you're saying someone early in their career is trying to figure things out, I'd say, don't go too broad, but get a few clearly defined skill sets, show who you are, show someone you can adapt and, and, and be nimble no matter what happens, that, hey, my role is going to change because all of us have done that. We've all had right. different you know, paths in our career. And I think it's really about that that I look for at least. And then I would say for any aspiring executive, it's going to be so important that they could show that along with being smart and creative with the kind of skills they take on, the internships they take on. Um, so it's not just like I've, I've interviewed people where they say, perfect, Ooh, we're demo, almost out of time. I'm going to just, oh, uh, no, 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 that's fantastic. And, you know, we need to have you back for another show. We'd love to. Um, Jackson Janiagam, Chief Marketing Officer for Box.com. Thank you so much thank for you, being Jackson. with us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, of course. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 